Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And this is our second episode that deals with epigenetics. It deals with uh, the ghost in our genes. The, uh, the Basically getting down to the sort of nature and nurture aspects of who we are. Uh, and uh, in the last episode, we, we really went down and discussed uh, some of what's actually happening at the, the genetic level, uh, what is happening at the epigenetic level, and then and then how all of that expresses itself in the phenome, which is who and what and we are, what how an organism exists, its mm-hmm. phenotype. So in this episode, we are going to talk about studies that have involved humans that, and, uh, and exactly how we see epigenetic uh, changes uh, carried on from one generation to the next. And it really gets down to discussions about how much choice do I have. I mean, it, any discussion of epigenetics and, and nature and nurture, there's this undercurrent of, of free will. Mm-hmm. To what extent am I shackled to my genes? To what extent is is everything about me just laid out in the original code work that was uh, that came together in the womb? And then how much of it is, and then how much of it is also out of my hands because of the environment that I am in, and the environment that I'm raised in, the environment that I grow up in, or as we're going to discuss uh, more, the environment that my mother was, grew up in, or the or that that her mother grew up in. Right. Like, like how much of it is. Uh, it's just sort of set in stone to a certain extent before uh, we even have uh, a say-so. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the free will angle about this, too, mm-hmm. because when we look at epigenetics, um, it does sort of bring into question to what degree um, are we just sort of dealing with the on-off switches of our genes and how they're expressed and, and how much of this um, is a genetically clean slate. Because it used to be that we would assume that, of course, you would uh, you would get your eye color or your hair color or the tone of your skin from mm-hmm. your parents, from your grandparents, so on and so forth. But you wouldn't necessarily have thought that the things that your mother and father did as 10-year-olds would matter to you. But, in fact, it does, and we'll discuss that. Yeah, and then there's a certain amount of magical thinking uh, in all of this as well, there's always you know these old ideas that die really hard. The you know, the apple never falls far from the tree, kind of a thing. You know, if the if the father was a criminal, then the son is destined to be a criminal. You know that kind of thing. If the and if the mother was was uh, a genius and just a, and, and a multitasker or whatever you know accolades you want to throw at her, then surely the offspring will have that as well. And uh, it's not as simple as that. Right. There's a psychological component to this that we will talk about, but right now we're going to talk more about the physiological component. And in order to do that, we're, we're just going to do a quick overview of epigenetics. Um, epigenetics is the study of gene expression and how it can vary from one yeah. generation to another. Epigenetics means in addition to the genes. In addition right. to genetics. Yeah, epi above the genome, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got the genome with all the DNA, the sequence that is that does not change, and then you have the material, as you had pointed out before, that's between the genome and the epigenome, and these are the proteins, these are the flip-switching areas of gene expression that can be passed down to another generation. I'm going to use a, a different metaphor this time that just occurs to me. Okay. Um, okay, think of, say, 30 Rock, the TV show, right? Lovely, just ended. Just ended, Very right. sad. All right, so imagine this. Liz Lemon comes up with a, a script for that night's show. Okay. All right? And you can think of that script as the uh, as the genome, all right? It's the, the genetic code. It says what 
is going to happen. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's say that uh, that script then passes over Jack Donaghy's desk, her boss's desk. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, given the current political or business environment, I'm going to make this change and this change and this change and this change and this change. And now this is the script that you're going to actually film. And then the version of the show that you see, the version that is filmed, that is the uh, that is the, the finished organism. Uh, so he's the methyl. He's the methyl group that attaches to the protein that turns on or off different aspects of of the script, right? Yeah, so you, we talked about DNA methylation in the last uh, episode, but we won't talk about it too much here. Yeah, it's basically the epigenome involves, and uh, I'm going to personify things a little bit here, but it's meddling. It's meddling based on environmental stimuli, environmental stimuli that may include, uh, it may be nutritional, it may have to do with angry, dangerous predators in the environment, stress in the environment, or, or various chemicals that are interacting with the, uh, with the organism's body. Yeah, and uh, this is why one member of a pair of identical twins can develop a bipolar disorder or asthma, even though the other is fine, right? This yeah. is epigenetics really helps to explain why this happens. Because some of these, uh, these the epigenetic changes are taking place in the womb, and they're more or less set for that that organism's life but other switches are coming on can come on and off throughout that that organism's life mm-hmm. so even though Jack Donaghy made this these script changes this week the environment might change you get a new president in office or there are different business concerns and then he might not make the same changes the following week all right so when we talk about epigenetic changes and we talk about them in humans one of the best ways to really look at this in detail is to look at uh, the Dutch famine, which happened during World War II. We're talking about between 1944 and 1945. And the reason why uh, researchers wanted to look at the Dutch famine and the families that were involved is because what do we have here? We have an environmental condition such as famine that mm-hmm. could greatly impact not just that generation, but the next generation and how its phenotypes, its attributes, those genes are expressed. Yeah, because the situation is here that researchers were seeing persistent health problems six decades following uh, this uh, Dutch hunger winter, as it's called. The researchers found that children exposed to famine during the first 10 weeks following conception had less DNA methylation of the imprinted IGF-2 gene than uh, children of the same sex, siblings of the same sex, that were unexposed to these conditions. That's right. So, in other words, that DNA methylation was the process that, that sort of attached to the proteins to turn on or off that gene. Yeah. And so, in this instance, they had less of it. In other words, the, this uh, DNA methylation wasn't able to, um, to, to actually sort of protect them. Yeah. And so that this... IGF-2 uh, gene was able to express itself a lot more in those children who experienced malnutrition. Yeah, now likewise, children that were exposed to these famine conditions at the end of pregnancy, they showed no difference in uh, methylation compared to uh, siblings that were unexposed. So uh, it's interesting to see like, see at what stage in development those those triggers are flipped. Now, um, this was in the Netherlands, and again, this was World War II. Uh, this was a great experiment for the researchers at Columbia University um, Public School of Health to, to really, and the Leiden University, excuse me, Medical Center in Netherlands, to really look at this data because they could see which families um, had the most food and, and the least food during that embargo uh, in the Netherlands. That is one example of what happens when you have um, a dearth of food, right? But what uh, what one researcher did, Dr. Lars Olive Bygren, is he looked at these 
Overcalix Youth in Norboten, which is a Swedish province. And he wanted to see how much food was available to these kids. Now, um, Bygren is a preventive health specialist, and what he did is he drew a random sample of 99 individuals born in this Overcalix parish in Norboten in 1905, and he used historical records to trace their parents and grandparents back to birth. So these are meticulous agricultural records, and what they found is that some of these kids had a lot of food available to them during winters. Some kids did not. They began. They they had sort of a stasis of um, impoverished food resources available to them. So what you see is is one line of kids who who can be sort of gluttonous mm-hmm. and eat a large amount at certain times, and another line just con- that continue on right. So you would think that the kids who weren't getting a lot of nutrition for for the entire period that they might be the ones that were affected here or adversely affected, but it's actually actually the kids who overate who we see in successive generations having the problems with their genes switching on. And when I talk about this, uh, these genes switching on and off, I'm talking about diabetes. I'm talking about shorter lifespans. In fact, Bygren found that kids who went from normal eating to gluttonous eating had produced grandsons who died an average of six years earlier than the grandsons of those who in- who had endured a poor harvest. And then Bygren and his team controlled for certain socioeconomic variations. And when they did that, the difference in longevity actually jumped to an astonishing 32 years. Okay. So, again, what we're seeing here is significant drops in lifespans. And they also found evidence of it occurring on the female line as well. So that means that the daughters and the granddaughters of girls who had gone from normal to gluttonous diets also lived shorter lives. And, of course, this study is important as we look at our own dietary uh, changes here just over the past, uh, in, well, in the past decade, uh, like here in the United States, uh, as we're looking at at, uh, at uh, generational changes in, uh, in the approach to food and approach to diet. And uh, and you kind of, I mean, in, in the sort of do-it-yourself, fix-it-up, improve-your-life kind of attitude, you want to think, well, all right, I used to eat this way. Um, now I'm going to, now I'm eating better. I'm eating smarter. Or I, I don't have the diet that my parents had or the mm-hmm. diet that my, my grandparents had. But you're still, to a certain extent, kind of shackled to their diet, uh, which is, uh, which is potentially scary. Yeah. Well, and I think that's why we have seen such a spike in obesity and diabetes mm-hmm. in, in very young children, you know, as young as five years old, six years old. Um, so some of them are saddled with these genes that are flipped on and off because of parents and previous generations eating habits or ability to, to get nutrition. So this guy, Bygren, he, he did these studies and then he hooked up with Dr. Marcus Pembry and he's a geneticist at the University College in London. And he dared to ask, well, what if the environmental pressures and social changes of the industrial age had become so powerful that evolution had begun to demand that our genes respond faster? So they hooked up and they found out a bunch of really very interesting things. Yeah, this one about smoking, particularly interesting. And this one was a uh, 2006, uh, published in European Journal of Human Genetics. And, uh, I mean, it's it's one thing to realize that yes, smoking, which of course is a a major thing for your body to have to deal with. It's easy to imagine, all right, especially based on what we've talked about here, to imagine smoking triggering certain epigenetic changes mm-hmm. in the body, and then those uh, those those changes being uh, transgenerational, passing on to the next generation, or potentially to generations beyond that. But what was really crazy about this uh, particular study is that they uh, they were looked at uh, like. 
four, over 14,000 fathers in the study, mm-hmm. and 166 of them had started smoking before the age of 11. And that's so that's before their bodies were actually preparing to enter puberty. And uh, and, and already these uh, changes were taking taking place. Yeah, because it turns out that that um, if they are affecting their body in an adverse way, i.e. smoking at mm-hmm. this age, and they begin to form sperm, they be- begin to make it, that is when uh, that sperm, that genetic material, is going to be informed by that outside environmental condition of smoking. Yes. And that, it's crazy to think about a 10-year-old who is smoking, I mean, I'm assuming pretty regularly here because... You know, it would have to be in order to have such a marked um, imprint right, yeah. on the genetic material. But that's crazy to think that a 10-year-old <laughs> could be affecting his future offspring at that moment. Yeah, it, it also it really throws this, this other idea on, on its head, this sort of idea that like when you're a kid that, you know, a lot of, a lot of stuff that happens when you're young is going to... Uh, is going to affect who you are as an adult, obviously. Mm-hmm. But you you kind of uh, sort of write in a certain amount of room for mistakes. Like, oh, I can I I can start smoking when I'm young and quit later. And if I can quit, then great, then I'm, I'm done with that. Or you know, you can you can do maybe kind of stupid things when you're 10 years old, and it's not going to really have as uh, as much impact on your later life. But already, it's having an effect on your children when you're 10, and that's uh, it's really eye-opening to think about. Yeah, I mean, because those kids who, who took up smoking that early, they had um, they had kids who had a much higher risk for obesity and they had other health problems well into adulthood and shorter lifespans. So what's amazing about the study is that they had 14,000 individuals, mm-hmm. and that's a very large sample. And year after year, they were able to look at the offspring and the parents here and look at them in terms of like their bone density, how much they weighed, what their habits were, and they were able to track them over a number of years. And so they got an amazing amount of data that can show them very clearly that um, you know some of the genes were flipped on or off in these instances. Yeah, I also ran across a study uh, talking about cocaine use. Um, and in this way, they, they, this experiment, they were using mice. So these were cocaine-using mice. And they found that in these mice, the mice would develop memory problems. They would pass on three generations um, due to these epigenetic changes. So there's another another example of something where, you know, one might think, oh, well, the the sins of one's youth, uh, you know, there'll be ramifications for that. But you tend not to think of three generations worth of ramifications for, you know, your your drug habit. Yeah, you know, I can't figure out whether or not this is comforting or, or just really problematic well, to understand it at this level. You know, I think it's I think it's a little column A, column B. I mean, mm-hmm. it's... It, you know, and we'll we'll get into this a little more before we close out the podcast. But um, but even as we continue to map out um, so many of these these things that that make us who we are, all these different environmental uh, changes and mm-hmm. all and the things written in our genes that contribute to us. There, I mean, ultimately, you're going to have to roll with what you get. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there at the end of the day, you you can worry about it a lot. You can worry about, okay, well, what, what were my child genetics? What were they? And then, and how am I nurturing this child and, and it becoming this battle of, of, of nurture and nature. And then you can, you can kind of overanalyze everything. Uh, but it, at the end of the day, you, you're, you're going to have to roll with it. Yeah, I know. And I realize this because my daughter has been asking about death a lot lately. And mm-hmm. so, just, you know, the question du jour this morning was, you know, what are the various ways that, you know, people die or how do people die? And so I was 
trying to tell her with, you know, with her four-year-old mind. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was trying to explain to her disease, which was very hard for her to get her mind around. Uh, she wanted to know if insects gave her diseases. And of course I said, said yes. I said <laughs> no. I thought, well, technically in some cases, but I said no, because of course I don't want her to be frightened of every ladybug and mosquito that she says she sees flying around. So anyway, need to know basis at four years old. But I began to think about this. I began to think, well, you know, as she gets older, she can have a more nuanced understanding of epigenetics. And certainly, you know, when she reaches age 20, there should be a lot that can be uncovered mm-hmm. about not just my epigenetics, but hers and, and perhaps, you know, various other offspring and trying to figure out um, sort of what the sins of the mother and father were. Yeah. And it can, I mean, it can certainly be... Uh perplexing to, to think about, too. Uh, I mean, for instance, uh, my wife and I are in the process of adopting a child. And uh, and so in that situation, the nurturing, of course, is going to be almost in, you know entirely on us. There's, mm-hmm. a, you know, there's a certain uh, uh, amount of time there that we're not in the picture, obviously. Uh, but uh, but then, the, of course, the genetics, the, the nature aspect of it is uh, almost entirely out of our hands. Mm-hmm. So it, it can lead to a, a certain amount of Worry and perplexion over over the the nature versus nurture over the epigenetic changes that 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 we can contribute to and and those that have already uh, you know left the, the train station. But uh, again, at the end of the day, you got to roll with it. So that's true. Yeah. That's true. You can't over worry about it. Um, but of course, you know you got to roll with what you get genetically, but you also have to roll with what you get in terms of emotional baggage when it comes to our parents, our ancestors, and this is where we, of course, discuss the ancestor syndrome. But before we talk about this, we should probably take a quick break, and uh, we'll be right back. All right, we're back, and we're going to talk now about a little something called ancestor syndrome and about uh, uh, some of the more almost philosophical aspects of genetic memory um, and uh, or even uh, you know racial memory, if you want. Um, and in, in this, uh, we can't help but think about uh, Carl Jung, who um, he had, of course, this theory of the collective unconscious and uh, that this idea that there's this uh, level of unconscious beyond a personal unconscious, beyond our own subconscious, that is shared by a society that's uh, that's, shared, that's uh, written in our ancestry, and it's uh, it's the reservoir of experiences and beliefs, um, you know, what have you, that we're ruled over by all these various universal archetypes. Mm-hmm. That while the the particulars of them may change, the the idea of the archetype is is just embedded uh, in our in our history, and uh, and so Jung talked a good bit about racial unconscious, racial memory, and. Uh, and there's a certain amount of this to be interpreted uh, when we start looking at uh, epigenetics. It's true because, uh, you know, we don't have scientific evidence to say that our ancestors' actual emotional experiences were passed down to us. Right. We can say that the environmental conditions could flip a switch. Because, I mean, that's a scary thought right there. Because everyone has their emotional things in any lineage that are going to be problematic. Right. Be it, you know, your Uncle, you know, your, your great great grandfather was a king who had his head cut off, or your great great grandfather was, uh, you know, a, a, a poor miner in West Virginia just struggling to make ends meet, you know? Yeah, and it's those kind of like forebearers' autobiographies that help uh, put together this idea that um, we do have these experiences passed down to us 
via stories, and that makes an imp- impact on our psyches. Um, Anne Anselin Schutzenberger, she is a professor emeritus at the University of Nice in France. She's actually 90 years old now. Uh, but she coined the term psychogenealogy. And this is this idea that there are these subtle ways in which we impact generations uh, of offspring. And the idea that all family groups share an inherent tendency to transmit those elements necessary for the continued survival of the group. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the group, the tribe, the family has ideas, tra- uh, traditions, certain things that it does over and over again to ensure the survival of this identity. And um, through stories, uh, wills even, a will is a story, right? Yeah. Um, again, traditions, that's a really big part of it. So Schutzenberg describes the theory of invisible loyalty as being something that is owed to previous generations and th- that this is a catalyst for unwittingly reenacting the life events of our ancestors. Huh. So this is the idea that you have this invisible loyalty to your great-grandmother, Josephine, who I, was the first circus acrobat. I don't know. Um, yeah. And you begin to think, you begin to take on these characteristics for yourself. So I, I think it's interesting because, um, you know, a child is born, it doesn't necessarily have any sort of identity. Right. It's got its genetic identity. It's got its phenotypes that are expressed, turn on and off. Uh, but then we begin to sort of do these or uh, layer these memories on top of this child to make the identity. And that's all good and fine if the child is good with this identity. But it, if, if it is not, then, of course, is, this is where we see conflict. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I, I can't help but think, too, about various materials I've read about the the, uh, the so-called, quote-unquote, uh, scar of adoption that uh, that – did anyone? And this is this is an area where people argue both sides. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's this argument that uh, that any adopted child uh, who comes to know about their adoption that there is a certain emotional scar there that's just unavoidable uh, because I mean it is a it, it becomes that person's personal history and they mm-hmm. have to fit themselves into this grander story of, of their lineage. So. Well, what's interesting about this is uh, there's a psychotherapist uh, Maliki Coleman, and she says that. A child is doted on with an emotional and psychological DNA chain from its parents and family, which enables the child to function successfully in that particular family context. So mm-hmm. if you have a child who is is adopted, then the, then already the child is forming this story that they didn't fit into the family right. context. Or can. A child can, I should, should say. That doesn't always happen. So that's the struggle there, I think, for trying to figure out where a child fits in. Now, you know... A, a child who is not adopted, I think, still feels this way. Yeah, yeah. I, that's one thing to always keep in mind is that uh, is that any child is going to struggle with who they are and what they are, and the possibility that their mom is is actually a princess and not the mother that they have in their life. Um, you see, you see that kind of situation because my uh, my younger sister, mm-hmm. who is to- who's not adopted, um, but she would form these stories in her head about how she was actually. The secret Biltmore child. I think this was after my, <laughs> my family, like, we went and saw the Biltmore mansion yeah. in Asheville. And so she had this story that she began to form that she was secretly one of the Biltmore children. Wow. And that was her real family. Um, so you, you see that kind of, uh, personal myth making, um, in, you know, in various levels, be it, uh, be it an, an adopted situation, uh, or, uh, you know, birth parent situation. So. No, my, my brother told me when I was six years old that I was adopted and I had blonde hair at that mm-hmm. time and, my family, dark hair, blue eyes, and um, 
and then he went through this whole sham thing and pretended he couldn't find my birth certificate and oh. produced his. Uh-huh. I mean, wow. Oh, that was elaborate. It was, yeah, that, that's the kind of kid he is. But, um, but yeah, I mean, every, I think at some point every child and adult feels like a black sheep with their family. And so the, you do get this emotional baggage and you do get these stories that are passed down that are like this sort of genetic memory. And I put that in air quotes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because it is sort of like this layering of information over you. And this leads us to magical thinking, of course. Oh, yeah, we get into, of course, the idea of law of contagion. We discussed this to a certain uh, extent in the past, too, about the idea. It gets into the whole area of, like, the, the powder of sympathy and the idea that uh, that you could uh, you could treat a wound by treating the weapon that caused the wound or mm-hmm. that by coming into contact with uh, with with somebody, you can, con- you can contract um, their sort of uh, spiritual or mental funk. Yeah, and so if you have something that is uh, uh, your ancestors, if you have artwork or some sort of piece of thing that's theirs, it feels like it has this magical quality to it because it brings with it all of this psychic uh, sort of baggage um, that your family is carrying around with them all the time. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about stuff uh, (laughs) and things. We we attach so much uh, importance to them and then uh, and and that has a a definite uh, impact on on how we think about them. I I mean, case in point, uh, my father's wristwatch. Um, that he, uh, he that he was wearing when he died, and uh, and I have been wearing it uh, for the past uh, couple of years. And then the other day it stopped uh, ticking, like the battery went went mm-hmm. uh, dead in it, which is something I knew would happen uh, eventually. I knew it didn't have like an you know an atomic uh, um, a battery in there or anything. Uh, but when it stopped working, it's like I I became real emotional, like mm-hmm. in spite of myself, mm-hmm. knowing that this was going to happen. But it. Uh, but there was this this aspect that this was an artifact that was somehow embodied with a sense of him and that it had kept ticking and that therefore a part of him was still ticking in it even though uh, on you know half of me just dismisses that as hooey even as i say it mm-hmm. there's a part of me that still really buys into that well so. and i think that's what that that's the the point here is like that we should underscore is that our our uh, families Family autobiography is very powerful stuff. Mm-hmm. And so we talk about things at the genetic level and we talk about envir- environmental um, aspects of it. And certainly we can see the phenotype expressed under pressure, but there is the psychological pressure too. And as you had noted at the top of the podcast, you know, if we tell our stories the same, if we tell ourselves the same stories all the time, like my family is this and we do this, um, you know, we're geniuses, then you begin to perform that part. Yeah. Or we're bank robbers. I'm going to go rob a bank. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't know if anybody actually thinks that, but. But, it, you know, so to a certain extent, it, it. I think there comes a part in anyone's life where you have to stop believing the story about yourself that people are telling you and start writing your own story or at mm-hmm. least editing that story, applying in a way epigenetic changes to the story you're given. Become you know? the Jack Donaghy of your own script. Exactly. Yes, become the Jack <laughs> Donaghy of your own stri- script and say, you know what, uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like there was a part in my life where I was, where I had to say, you know what, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a really good writer, and that's going to be my thing, and that's my story, and and it becomes your story, if mm-hmm. you, you know, within a limited, ex- you know, stint. I couldn't say now I'm going to be the president of the United States. That maybe, maybe not. You got to, you got to level your your dreams with your abilities. But, but there does come a point where you have to, you have to, I think, rewrite that story. Otherwise, you're just going to be shackled to this old story, and that's where that's where uh, actually some of Schultzenberger's work comes into play, where she was mm-hmm. examining things like quote unquote family curses, 
I'm probably yeah. doing too many air quotes uh, in this podcast. I apologize. But, uh, you know, looking into ideas of family curses and, and, and things of this nature and looking at, the, at it really having to do with buying into a story and into, into, into a lineage and letting that influence who you think you are. That's interesting. That's like the Kennedy curse, right? Yeah. If you look at that. Yes, a bunch of things happened in their family, but they have a very large family living in a very different way. Yeah. Um, well, and of course, slavery in America is a big thing, too, because mm-hmm. you have something, I mean, you, um, among racial divides, you have individuals who go back in time and you find uh, slavery or you find slavers, and it continues and will continue to be a, a problematic aspect of uh, kind of our psycho history. This is true. All right. Well, there you go. Uh, two episodes that we've done now about epigenetics. Um, and I think, you know, this supplies a good starting point uh, for everyone to really think about uh, genetic changes, epigenetic changes, um, nature versus nurture in sort of a larger uh, theme. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you if you want to learn a little bit more, you want to rehash some of the details, uh, do check out the article, um, How Epigenetics Works on By How Still Works. I did write that. I wrote it a couple of years ago. So... Uh, it may need uh, an update, but still, most all the core information in that is still good. It's a very fine article, and it does point out some of the, the practical applications here, too, um, that I just wanted to mention, that drug therapies are beginning to be developed and have been developed to help flip those switches when it comes to disease like the drug as a, as a sedidin, and that helps suppress leukemia. So keep that in mind, too. It's not all just, uh, whew, we, we need to look at the ghost in the machine. There, there are definite things that are coming out of this to help us along as we get a better understanding of epigenetics. Yeah. And I'll close out here with a, a quote from uh, Peter Brooks' um, play, his adaptation of uh, the uh, Hindu epic, the Mahabharata, uh, where one character is speaking about the character Karna, who uh, himself was an orphan who grew up to be a, a mighty warrior. Uh, and the quote is, uh, birth is obscure, and men are like rivers whose origins are often unknown. So there you go. Um, let's call the robot over here and do just one quick listener mail before we uh, leave. All right, this one comes to us from Dominique. Dominique uh, writes and says, hi, Julian Robert. Just listened to your Cool Science of 2012 podcast. Really great. I'm surprised you didn't reference the phoenix when speaking about the immortal jellyfish. Uh, and immortal in quotes there because we discussed it's not really immortal but for headline purposes it's immortal right uh, it was the first thing that came to my mind uh, that this is the aquatic equivalent of the legendary bird that would go up in flames at the end of its life to leave an egg in its place which would uh, from which it would then be reborn which is a very good point I'd I don't know why I didn't think about the phoenix because it's it's really more of an example of uh, of the mythical phoenix as uh, more so than it is an example of immortality mm-hmm Dominique continues, quantum teleportation also had me smiling as I first started to equate the entangled, entangled pair of subparticles to those mythical twins who, where one supposedly feels the pain of the other even across large distances. Of course, in this case, the twins would be killed off every time a cut uh, would be made on their arm to transmit a bit of the info. I'm now imagining a sci-fi story where shiploads of twins would be brought to the distant planet by a supply ship, then sacrificed by the thousands every time a message had to be sent. Wow, yeah, that's sort of like Hunger Games scenario. Yeah, and uh, one twin would have to. And, and Dominique uh, writes to us from France, by the way. So ah. there you go. But yes, that the, the twin example was a great one that I would have wish I would have thought about. Um, a few years back in New York, there was this guy who was uh, offering this kind of like an art installation kind of piece, uh, the idea of quantum marriage, where it, you would supposedly become quantum entangled to your partner, 
Um, so it gets into a little bit of that. Well, thanks, Dominic, for writing in. So if you would like to share anything with us, um, uh, particularly if you'd like to share your thoughts on uh, genetic and epigenetics um, about the, the the stories that we uh, we we bring into our lives, that the stories that we end up uh, creating and tweaking um, to uh, to really become who we are, then uh, let us know about it. We would love to hear your insight and your thoughts. You can find us on Facebook and Tumblr. We are Stuff to Blow Your Mind on both of those. And you can also find us on Twitter, where our handle is Blow the Mind. And you can always write us a letter at BlowTheMind at Discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 